like that, signing a blank check, say, Lord, give us your word, we're going to follow. And so let's turn to his word, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, we've been looking at some of the distinctives of our church over the past, what is it, 28 <laughs> Sundays. And uh, the last two times we've been looking at the doctrine of church government. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 12 through 18. Hear the word of God. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, <coughs> beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves, as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond, and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord, for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Amen. Father God, we... Uh, do come before your word. It is our light. It is our salvation. It is our sanctification. And Father, it is our desire to follow after your word with all of our heart. Give us hearts, Father, that are pure and loyal. And I pray that as we uh, seek to understand uh, the uh, principles of ecclesiology, Father, that we would understand the practical ramifications of these and we would delight in the wisdom that uh, you have manifested in your scriptures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> you may be seated. <coughs> I've talked to uh, uh, pastors, even in our denomination, who sometimes say, boy, the last thing that they've wanted to read is books that deal with church government because it's just so boring. They had to read some in seminary, so they know some of the background on that. But uh, we uh, spent some time last week demonstrating that there are enormous ramifications on your views and your practices, and sometimes those are different, but your views and practices of uh, church government. And uh, we compared church government to uh, four types of civil government, and hopefully by now you recognize, you know, it's not safe at all to take a who cares attitude. It would be sort of like saying, ah, who cares if we live in... China or Angola or America, so long as you, we can have a good home, a good job, and have a nice family, well, you find very quickly that what kind of government you live under makes a big difference as to whether you even own your home, whether you have family freedoms. And uh, so what we were trying to demonstrate last week is there are huge ramifications. Ideas have consequences. And the ideas that people have on ecclesiology have enormous consequences. Sometimes they're not aware of the consequences, but they are there. We're not going to repeat those. You'll have to listen to last week's sermon if uh, you're curious about that. But we also saw that Presbyterianism takes the best from three other forms of government. And then with the checks and balances we're going to look at today, it produces a form of church government that I think gives the ultimate in liberties. And so it borrows a little bit from uh, democracy. Uh, we looked at passages like Acts 6, verses 5 and 6, Acts 14, verse 23, to show that the congregation has the right to vote for its officers. And we looked at passages that indicate that at the Presbytery and the General Assembly, they vote on various issues. And so even though Presbyterianism rejects democracy as a system, there are at least some principles of democracy that are taken over in terms of voting for representatives. Now, secondly, Presbyterianism, as well as our American Republic, also borrows a little from oligarchy. Oligarchy is the rule of a few unelected officials. Now, we disagree with the unelected part, and we disagree with a few other aspects of oligarchy, but we saw that plurality of elders, by uh, which they uh, try court cases, they give advice and consent, that is part of Presbyterianism. In fact, older Presbyterians saw a major distinction between the executive office of the pastor who was uh, uh, leading some of the ministries of the church and the judicial uh, 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 branch 
of what the elders did. And by the way, they did not believe that there was a legislative branch because uh, they said God's given the laws. We don't make new laws. No legislative branch in the church. But the session, Presbytery and General Assembly are all called courts of the church. They're courts of appeal, General Assembly and Presbytery. And maybe this is uh, as good a time as any to at least mention the controversy in Presbyterianism on whether there is uh, three offices or whether there are two offices in the church. Uh, older Presbyterians held to the three-office uh, view of uh, pastor, uh, elder, and uh, deacon. Uh, Dabney and Thornwell were two Southern theologians who popularized the two-office view that I hold to. But you know, what, when it really comes down to brass knuckles and the actual living out of the practice, I'm not sure it makes that big of a difference whether you hold to the th uh, three-office view of Charles Hodge or wh whether you hold to the two-office view of Dabney and Thornwell. They said there were two offices and three orders. Uh, but uh, on both sides of the Hodge and Dabney debate, they agreed with the next point, and that is that Presbyterianism even borrows a tiny idea from monarchy, and that is that the day-by-day -day leadership requires an individual. The vision requires an individual. The courts do not. The courts require a group of people who function together, but jobs, that's the carrying out of church policy, the executive function requires one person to head up ministry in any given ministry and any given level of government. And um, uh, sessions maybe meet once a month to provide oversight and advice and consent, but they are not present to be able to run the ministries on a day-by-day -day basis, and ministries need leadership uh, every day. And so, uh, uh, theoretically anyway, uh, the leaders within the church are freed up from micromanaging of an oligarchy. And whether it's the three-office view of, of uh, Charles Hodge or the, some people call it the two-and-a-half-office view of uh, Dabney and Thornwell, um, it, it really does not matter. This principle is really essential. That's why we have individuals who head up given ministries in our church, and they report to me. I report to the session. Well, in this case, since we don't have a session yet, I report to a group from uh, the presbytery who oversees things. But that, it's that accountability issue that I think is the key issue. In the PCA, ruling elders are members of the local church, whereas teaching elders are members of presbytery. And it's just another one of many checks and balances that um, uh, protect against the tyranny of either monarchy, oligarchy, or democracy. And so uh, we didn't deal with the whole of Roman numeral one. We're not going to deal with them. I'm going to skip on to point number two, which I've expanded on just a little bit. There are six kinds of powers that you will find discussed in any discussion of the U.S. Constitution. Actually, they've more recently added a few powers that will maybe mention that uh, are not good powers that are added. But these six, if you look at the, trace the history of them, you will find that they originated in 18th century Presbyterianism. There were discussions that were quite frank where they borrowed those. And uh, I gave a number of quotes from our founding fathers last week uh, along those lines. But before we get to those six powers, there are two foundational issues that absolutely have to be settled. And the first one, I think, is foundational to all of the others when we're discussing the extent of authority. Point A, and if you don't have outlines, there's plenty of outlines in the back that you can take notes on. Uh, point A says, Christ is the only sovereign head of the church. I give some scriptures. And his word alone can be the authority of the church, unquote. And so a 51% vote of the church is not sovereign. The session, the board of elders, they are not sovereign. The pastor is not sovereign. Christ alone is, is king. And so Ephesians 5.23 says Christ is the head of the church. Now, what does that mean in practical terms? Well, in part, it means that the church derives its power and authority from Christ alone and neither congregation nor bishop nor oligarchy can grant to the church powers that Christ himself has not specifically granted. The state may not grant authority to the church that Christ has not granted. You may not give away some of your powers uh, to the, the, the board of elders, for example, if Christ has not given those powers to the board of elders. Uh, we're going to be seeing how you as a congregation have powers, and there's a separation of powers issue that we'll look at uh, a, a little bit later on. <clears throat> but in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says that you may learn in us 
not to think beyond what is written. What is written in the Bible is the highest authority. All lawful acts of the church are the acts of Christ himself, but no act is lawful unless it can be specifically found in the pages of the Bible. Okay, so that's the principle, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. Now, that means that every feature of our Constitution and our Book of Church Order must be able to be justified from the Bible. Let me quote from our Book of Church Order where it comments on Christ alone being the king of the church. It says, Christ as king has given to his church officers, oracles, and ordinances, and especially has he ordained therein his system of doctrine, government, discipline, and worship, all of which are either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary inference may be deduced therefrom, and to which things he commands that nothing be added and that from them not be taken away. In uh, Morton Smith's uh, commentary on the PCA Book of Church Order, he says, quote, Other forms of church government may be able to say that they are not forbidden in so many words, but it is explicitly the Presbyterian form of government that claims to be a jus divinum, unquote. Jus divinum means divine law, which means if you can't find it in the Bible, we're not allowed to do it. Okay, you can't just say, well, the Bible didn't forbid it. We have to say, where is it justified what you are doing in the Bible, which is a much higher standard uh, than the one the, the Scripture does not uh, command it. But that's the implication that Paul is driving from Christ's headship that we may not go beyond what is written in the Scriptures. And this is contrary to every form of government that says, hey, the Bible does not give a form of government. All we do is we try to... Uh, operate in terms of general principles that work the best. It's pragmatism. And we say, no, if it's not in the Scripture, we may, not, we may not do it. But let's look at another way in which the exclusive headship of Christ is denied in the church today. And this is a key one, and it's a distinctive of our church. When churches get incorporated, or when they become legal corporations, they are introducing an authority over the church that is not only unbiblical, nowadays it is downright hostile to Christ, and yet there has been a mad rush of churches to get incorporated over the past 50 years. It used to be illegal in most states of the Union, and now everybody's trying to get on board. In fact, I think right now it's almost 80% of churches that have a membership of more than 100, almost 80% have become state churches. And that's exactly what kind of a church you are when you're incorporated, because you have put yourself now under the jurisdiction of the, of the state, and it becomes a state church. And there are several court cases that could be cited uh, to, to just illustrate this, but let me give you the Matthews versus Adams case of 1988. This was a court uh, of appeals, <coughs> and it says, Appellants appeal on the basis that the circuit court had no authority over them because they are a recognized religious organization, a church. On first reflection, they appeared to be correct, but upon a closer study of the complaint and the judgment, we are of the opinion that this is not an improper interference by the government into a church or ecclesiastical matter. Okay, it's a specifically an ecclesiastical matter. Listen in the next sentence what their reasoning was on this. It's got, quote, When the members of the church decided to incorporate their body under the laws of the state of Florida, they submitted themselves to the jurisdiction of the state court in all matters of a corporate nature. So we're talking about jurisdiction here. Does the state have any jurisdiction whatsoever in terms of church governmental issues? And I would say absolutely no. And our founding fathers of America, to a man, whether they were Christians or deists, would have said absolutely no. There can be no jurisdiction that the state has over church government. Now, before I uh, amplify on this a little bit, let me clarify something here and say that I don't have the same problems with a business getting incorporated that I do with the church getting incorporated because a business, when it gets incorporated, is not placing the family government under the jurisdiction of the state, and it's not placing... Uh, church government under the jurisdiction of the state. See, there, there's really no problem with saying we're under, as individuals, all of us are under the jurisdiction of the state, right? Uh, that, that's not a problem there. Um, 
It's the separation of governments that is the issue. The technical problem is the problem of family government and church government being under the jurisdiction of the state. I wear several hats. I wear a hat as a private citizen who is under the jurisdiction of the state. I wear a hat as an officer of the church that is not under the jurisdiction of the state. And I also wear the hat as an officer of my family who is not under the jurisdiction of the state as to how to run my family. Now, I'm a father, and as a father, you know, I'm under the jurisdiction of the state, you know, in terms of being an individual, but not in terms of how to run the family. Do you see that as a governmental issue where there are, are, are separation of, uh, of governments? And so, like I say, I don't have the same problems with business corporations that I do with church corporations, but a state church is a denial of the sovereign and exclusive headship of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is interposing another authority over it. Now, the last quote I gave says that churches voluntarily apply for the government to have jurisdiction. And the IRS code makes that very clear that the Constitution automatically exempts all churches from uh, taxation, for example. Uh, they are separate governments, and it's written right into the IRS code. But when they apply for special favors with 501c3 status, or when they apply for incorporation, they then are asking for jurisdiction. It's a trade. The government gives them special favors. They give up something to the government as well. And that court case that I just uh, quoted said before they applied for incorporation, they were not under the jurisdiction of the state, but afterward they were. <coughs> um, <coughs> what some church lawyers have argued is that this does not give jurisdiction to the church as church, but only to the church as corporation. Now, that's nice in theory. But the problem is the corporation overlaps what the church as church does in almost everything that it does and has, you know, and so you really cannot uh, extricate uh, the two uh, nicely like that. And there have been numerous court cases that have interfered in such things as, for example, the church's right to preach on certain things. Uh, in 11 Corpus Juris, Charities Number 103, the law says that the officers of the church can be removed by the state. You might wonder, why in the world could they do that? Because they're officers of the state. They are officers of the state. Let me read you a little dialogue that went on between Everett Sullivan and the judge who was trying his case here in, in Nebraska. And I'm getting this from Michael Gilstrap's essay in Christianity and Civilization, Volume 3. At one point, the judge leaned over his bench and remarked to Reverend Sullivan, I don't understand why you won't submit your school to licensure. Don't you realize that everything in your church is licensed from the building to the hymn books? Reverend Sullivan replied, what do you mean? The judge answered, isn't the Faith Baptist Church incorporated? Well, yes, Sullivan answered. As a corporation, said the judge, every possession of Faith Baptist Church is licensed by the state of Nebraska. We control it all, and that is the reason we can require you to submit your school to licensure. Now, if you think this is just an odd case of a tyrannical judge, I would encourage you to read the book in Caesar's Grip by Peter Kershaw, where he goes through many, many cases. He goes through an interpretation of the law. He goes through the history of the law, going all the way back to the Romans, where incorporation uh, started. Uh, he looks at uh, why it was illegal in most states of the Union until the last century. It's still illegal in Virginia. You cannot get a church incorporated in Virginia because they believe it violates the Constitution. And I think they're right. I think they're absolutely right. And in the early church, Christians were prepared to die rather than to affirm Caesar's lordship over the church, over their Christianity. It's a jurisdictional issue. And by the way, the early church did not have any problem with calling Caesar Lord in terms of their own citizenship. No problems whatsoever. But where they had the problem was in, in saying that the state could regulate their Christianity. <clears throat> they refused to subject the church and Christianity to the state licet or license. Now, if Caesar was lord over them as citizens, no problem. If Caesar was lord over their Christianity, no way. And Rome prided itself in giving religious freedom. In fact, there is no empire in the world that had such religious freedom as Rome had. You could...
just about do anything so long as you applied for a license from the state to practice your religion, right? And Christianity refused. That was the issue. It was the licensing of Christianity. It was the incorporation of the church. And every time a church gets incorporated, it is gladly asking for what saints of old died to avoid. Now, in the Matthews versus Adams case, the court said, when the members of the church decided to incorporate their body under the laws of the state of Florida, they submitted themselves to the jurisdiction of the state. This is not a peripheral issue. This strikes at the headship of Christ and of the separation of governments and within governments, of the separation of powers. In fact, it eventually removes all power whatsoever from the church. I want you to turn in your, um, in your worship notes. You have a little packet that's a partial photocopy of um, a catechism. It's a marvelous catechism uh, that was put together. But look at number 214. It says, what is the name given to that opinion which maintains that the church possesses no power and that the office of its rulers consists solely in instruction and persuading the people? Answer, it is called Erastianism, from Erastus, its author, a physician who lived in the 16th uh, century. <clears throat> uh, this was the view of the Anglican Church that the Westminster Confession uh, was written against, and it is always the logical end result of any state church because it removes Christ's headship in any meaningful way. Okay, Robert Shaw. And some of these quotes I'm uh, giving to you are in the back of your worship notes, but Robert Shaw in his exposition on the Westminster Confession said, Christ is the sole and exclusive head of the church, whether consideration is visible or invisible. His authority alone is to be acknowledged by the church as her supreme lawgiver. Christ has not delegated his authority either to popes or princes, and though he is now in heaven as to his bodily presence, yet he needs no deputy to act for him to the church below. Daring encroachments have often been made upon this royal prerogative of Christ, both by ecclesiastical and civil powers." And then look at the Moorcraft quote there. Civil constitutions have no power in the courts of the church. Ecclesiastical constitutions have no authority in the civil government. Christ is the Lord of the civil government. He is the Lord of the church. But to prevent tyranny, he has kept those as separate governments jurisdictionally. That doesn't mean that there cannot be, there cannot be influence, but jurisdictionally, they are, they are quite separate. Limited, delegated, and enumerated powers, and by far the most important of those, I think, is enumerated powers. Enumerated powers means that a government only has those powers which are specifically numbered out in a constitution. Now, before we can even get there, we have to deal with the issue of whether we're allowed to have a constitution, because there are a lot of people who say, you know, no creed but the Bible. And usually they're churches that end up becoming uh, liberal down the road. So I, I want to deal just briefly with the issue of whether it's legitimate to have a creed. The no creed but the Bible a mantra that you have in some denominations is an absolute impossibility. Every church has a creed, whether it's written or not. The moment a teacher opens his mouth to teach, he is establishing a creed. And I was uh, talking one time with a pastor who is from one of those denominations that says no creed but the Bible. And I asked him, well, do you believe such and such a doctrine? I knew he didn't, but I asked him, do you believe in that? No. Do you believe this doctrine? Yes. And do all the pastors of your congregation believe this doctrine? Yes. And he knew who, what reform people held to, so I asked him, do you think a reform guy like me would be able to be a pastor in your denomination? And he smiled and he said, no, I don't think so. We are self-consciously pietistic. And I said, well, it seems that you do have a creed after all. And he smiled and he says, yeah, I guess we have an informal creed because a creed is simply a tradition of, of teaching. And the question is not, do we have a creed or don't we? The question is, is the tradition of teaching that you have biblical or is it unbiblical? Christ and the apostles were not at all opposed to a tradition of teaching. In 1 Corinthians 11:2, Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, we already mentioned in the sermon that Paul's uh, tradition uh, was that they follow his example. That's a tradition. 
And what was his tradition? That you not go beyond what is written. In other words, it's an exclusively biblical tradition. He told them, don't even believe what I say unless you see it in the scriptures. He tells the Bereans and others. He praises them. So it was an exclusively biblical tradition, whereas the Pharisees had a creed, but that creed had added all kinds of unbiblical laws and traditions you couldn't find anywhere in the scriptures. Jesus said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. So he was opposed to Jewish Talmudic tradition, to their creed. Why? Because it had introduced an authority that went beyond the scripture. And we're opposed to Roman Catholic tradition for the same reason. Now listen to the contrast between intolerance for unbiblical traditions and his uh, adherence to biblical traditions. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, the epistle was the scripture, the word was the oral teaching. He didn't just read through the Bible and just sit down and leave it at that. No, he systematized. You look at his sermons, he's pulling scriptures from all over and systematizing in terms of a doctrine. So he's establishing a tradition of teaching that he says they need to hold on to. He goes on in 2 Thessalonians uh, 3, verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. So in the course of systematizing the doctrines, he was teaching this congregation. He says, I want you to teach as I have taught and that, that tradition, that body of doctrine that was being passed on is exactly what we are, we are talking about. They had a Bible, they had a creed that summarized biblical teaching. And actually, this goes back to the Old Testament covenantalism uh, where they would on various occasions write up a covenant document that had moral commitments and had theological commitments, and they would make the leaders of the people sign those those statements. And I give one example in your, in your bulletins, Nehemiah 9, verse 38, through chapter 10, verse 39. So there is a, a paper that's written out, and it's got theological commitments, moral commitments, and they all sign that. That's called covenantalism. It's called federalism. Federalism is a synonym for covenantalism. We use the term federal government, you know, just to refer to, you know, the government in Washington, D.C., but I want you to realize that federal government is a synonym for covenantal government, okay? They are restricted by the covenant document, supposedly, that is the U.S. Constitution. It is a covenanted or federated uh, government uh, that uh, has all of its uh, powers uh, laid out uh, within, a, within a, uh, a document. And so any covenant in the Bible was a written document just as our USA Constitution is and like the PCA Constitution is. Now, in your worship notes, I want you to pull out this portion of the Catechism on Presbyterian Principles. It was written in 1843, and I should have put uh, the information on the top. 1843, Reverend Thomas Smythe, S-M-Y-T-H, very influential, very famous uh, writer on ecclesiology, and let me quote from several sections so you can get a little bit of a feel for the difference between how we treat our Constitution and how we treat the Bible. Some people say, why don't you just make the Bible your Constitution? Well, there's a number of good reasons we don't. Number one, a Constitution can be amended. The Bible can't, right? <laughs> and that's the biggest uh, reason. Number two, a, a covenant really is a temporal, it's a limited document. The Bible is not. And number three... Usually, when you have a constitution like a government, you're drawing out principles from the Bible that just relate to government. If every time somebody was wondering if this is constitutional or not, you had to read all 66 books, it would be a pile of work and, and you might miss something. And so they pull those things together in a systematic way. And so there's a huge difference between the Bible and a constitution. And it's essential to have a federal document, a covenantal document, um, and every time you hear the word federal government from now on, I hope you realize that means it's a limited government. It's a, it's, a, it's a covenantal government, you know, and it may not go beyond its covenantal uh, uh, questions. Okay, look at question number 237. 
has the church the right to drop summaries of Christian doctrine, as, for instance, confessions of faith and catechisms? Answer, in order to exhibit to the world her views of the scriptures, to oppose prevailing heresies and errors, to instruct her children and people, to determine the sentiments of candidates for admission into the ministry and to secure harmony and uniformity in her public ministry, it is the privilege and duty of every church to draw up such summaries of Christian doctrine. And if you want some uh, uh, scripture proofs for that, uh, you could write down 1 Corinthians 11.2, 2 um, Thessalonians 2.15, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, the Nehemiah passage, there's a number that you could look at. But let, let's keep reading. 238. What authority do these summaries possess in themselves considered? They have in themselves considered no more authority than any other human compositions. From what then is their authority derived? The authority of such summaries is derived solely from their conformity to the scriptures. Are such summaries to be regarded as infallibly correct? No. The only infallible rule for the interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. Does our confession of faith claim any other power over those who receive it? No. For it is stated in that confession that all synods or councils since the apostles' time may err, and many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help to both. Can you state any other declaration which that confession makes of the same significance? Yes, it declares that it belongeth to synods and councils ministerially, that is, as minister of God's word, to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience, and that their decrees and determination, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission. How then do you reconcile the authority claimed for these standards with that supreme authority which is ascribed to the word of God? No individual is compelled to receive these standards contrary to his own voluntary choice, and in submitting them himself to the authority of the church, every individual declares that he receives its standards because, after full examination, he believes them to contain the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures. By the way, when he talks about people accepting, and later on he goes into and saying it's the officers of the church who have to agree to those statements, and members agree to be taught them. Okay, but they don't have to agree. We've got, uh, down through the years, we've had people who uh, held to different principles, but they were perfectly willing to uh, be teachable. Now, if you turn back to number 222, I want to read two more catechisms related to liberty of conscience. Can church officers enact anything contrary or in addition to the word of God and make it binding on the conscience? No. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. Is it proper for any ecclesiastical officers to require implicit faith? Implicit means you believe it because they said it, right? Uh, not because they've proved it from the Bible. And so we don't believe in implicit faith. But he says, to require implicit faith in anything for which no scriptural warrant can be given or an absolute obedience to mere ecclesiastical decrees without such plain warrant? No. This is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. Now, that's a ton of material to be reading in a sermon, but I thought it was important for you to see that even though we officers are sworn, are bound to submit to the Constitution, to the Confession, we're limited by that, we do not treat it as an infallible document. Only the Bible is infallible. Now, we believe that it's the best summary of, of Christian doctrine and teaching on church government that you can find. But uh, as long as we are officers, we are vowed to submit to it or to seek to change it if we believe it's unbiblical. And actually, there was, um, at the last church, uh, we uh, tried to change the Constitution relative to uh, voting. There are some things I don't agree with the Constitution on. And... Uh, passed the session, passed Presbytery, passed the General Assembly, went back to Presbyteries on the last time when it would be affirmed at the General Assembly, it lost by a few votes. But again, that's the process you go through in trying to amend that. But if you just go out and you say, hey, if, if uh, I don't agree with the Constitution, I'm not going to limit myself by it, then the Constitution becomes a meaningless document. It's no longer a limiting uh, document. 
So we're a constitutional church, just as Ezra's church was a constitutional church with signed documents. Now, with that as a background, let's look at these powers that are found in our Constitution. Just as our founding American fathers intended the Constitution to be a short list of what the federal government had, Presbyterianism taught that the church cannot have even an inkling of any authority that is not explicitly laid down in the Bible. And so our Book of Church Order has sought to pull out of the Bible things that, for example, deacons are allowed to do, and what things elders, and what things pastors can do, what things a session can do in contrast to a presbytery and a general assembly. And that process is called the process of enumerated powers. You're numbering them out in your, in your uh, constitution. And we may not go beyond those. Again, commenting on the introduction to our denomination's Book of Church Order, Morton Smith says, as already noted, the book here affirms the regulative principle applies to doctrine, government, discipline, and worship. You're all familiar with the regulative principle of worship, right? That we may only do in worship what God has authorized in his word. Well, this applies across the board, he says, uh, in the church. Uh, so continuing, he says, as already noted, the book here affirms the regulative principle applies to doctrine, government, discipline, and worship. Christ as king has given his word concerning each of these areas to the church, and nothing is to be added or taken from his word. The church should always be most careful as to how it frames the rules and guidelines for each of these areas, that they are in accord with the inspired word of God at every point. And I cannot emphasize too much how important this principle of enumerated powers is. Ninety percent of what the U.S. federal government does is unconstitutional because it's unfederal. It's uncovenanted. It's not been enumerated in the covenant documents. Uh, you will look in vain in the Constitution for the agencies and the boards and the departments that have arisen in the past 50 years. They are blatantly unconstitutional because they have not been enumerated in the, the covenantal documents. The courts have come up with a new power called implied powers. Implied powers is the diametrical opposite it's not something in addition to. It's the opposite of enumerated powers. The reason they had enumerated powers is they said, if it's not in the Constitution, the federal government may not do it. And now it's the very reverse, you know. Uh, it, it's, it, it, if they're not somehow forbidden to do it, the, the federal government is involved in that. And unfortunately, even conservatives who are working in Washington, D.C., are so used to operating in terms of implied powers that they're running roughshod over the Constitution. Unless we stick to the enumerated powers, it becomes a meaningless document. Anything is up for grabs. And if our church constitution does not stick to enumerated powers, then the whole thing, all of the other limits to, to power are up for grabs as well. And that's why I say, just because I disagree at a, a few minor points with our constitution does not mean I can ignore those things. If I ignore those things, then everything else is up for grabs. Okay? We have to amend the documents. You can't ignore the documents. Okay, the second term related to power is limited powers. No one but Jesus has all authority, has unlimited authority. Jesus says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, Matthew chapter uh, 28. Nobody else has that. Not even the apostles had that. Uh, the apostle Paul says, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God has appointed to us. He had limited authority. That's 2 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Now, there's tons of scriptures that deal with uh, what some of the specifics of those limits are, two or three witnesses and stuff like that. We're not going to get into that. And I'm not going to get into the catechism uh, 201 through 215, though Smythe there has some wonderfully articulated descriptions of the limits of our authority, but put into a nutshell, you can say it this way. Officers of the church have no legislative power. They only have ministerial power. I think in a nutshell, you could say it that way. Officers have no legislative power. They have only ministerial power. We minister God's word. And so over and over, Paul spoke of the officers of the church as being ministers or servants of Christ, and uh, they're ministering his word. And so there is no legislative branch in the church. So let me repeat that. The power that we have is not legislative. It is ministerial. 
which means I am not allowed to add an 11th commandment to the Bible. And if I did, I would hope you would bring charges against me before presbytery. And that's one of the powers we're going to be looking at that you as a congregation have. Uh, we, may not, uh, we may not go beyond uh, the, the Scripture. Christ spoke his harshest words against the Pharisees who failed to see the limits of their authority, and they were adding all kinds of laws and traditions. Now, you can see how this relates very closely to the next power, delegated powers, third kind of power. And in this case, it's not the people who delegate the powers to the church. The people are part of the church. It's Christ himself who delegates it. He's the one who has all authority. He's the one who must give all authority. And so in Luke 9, and again in Luke 10, you find Jesus giving authority to his disciples. In John chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus models what it's like to live in terms of delegated authority. How do you live in terms of delegated authority? Here's what he says. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. John 14.10, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. And we need to take our cue from that. Uh, the words that we must speak must not be based just upon church authority. They must be based upon the words of Christ. One old Presbyterian said, in Christ's church, Christ's voice alone is to be heard. Now, you can ignore my mere opinions because my opinions don't have any authority, but you cannot ignore my words if my words are biblical because they carry the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Can you see that? Okay, so in Christ's church, Christ's voice alone is to be heard. And that's why I keep telling you, don't believe it because Phil Kaiser says it. Be Berean, study the scriptures, and as soon as you see it scriptural, submit. Submit to the authority that Christ wields through me. Romans 13 says, there is no authority if not from God. Now that was especially related to the state, but it echoes in the church as well. Second uh, Corinthians 13.10 says that Paul is working, quote, according to the authority which the Lord has given to me. And you can see some other examples in your outline of delegated authority to officers, to congregation. Now here's the interesting thing. The flow of authority is not from Christ to the general assembly, to the presbytery, to the local church. It's the exact opposite. Christ gives his authority directly to the local church and nothing even gets to the presbytery or to the general assembly that does not come through the local church. And you can see that in many passages. You can see it in Exodus 18 and the New Testament. You can see it in Acts chapter 15 um, where it, it goes to the local church, then to the presbytery, and then on to the general assembly. And then when the general assembly makes its decision, that is binding on the whole church. But this is why the PCA speaks of itself as a grassroots denomination. It does not want anything initiated from the General Assembly. It all comes through the local church. And so this is a, a check and balance, delegated powers. Another type of power that you hear about in discussions of the U.S. Constitution are separation of powers. Separation of powers. D. James Kennedy, commenting on the U.S. Constitution, said, Representative government, separation of powers... Our federal, which means covenantal system, and religious liberty are a few of the legacies we enjoy today from John Knox, unquote. And John Knox, of course, being the popularizer of, of uh, Presbyterianism. He says that, that Presbyterianism, it profoundly impacted the American Republic. And I guess I should mention that separation of powers works a little bit differently in the church than in the state. But the reason is the same. Not all power should be in one position. Now, here's where the power of the people comes into play. Uh, in Morton Smith's commentary on the PCA Book of Church Order, he says, quote, The church derives its power from a higher source than the members of the church. It is not just a voluntary society to whom submission is a matter of individual op option. The power of the church comes from Christ. This authority is not vested in the rulers so that they are unaccountable to the people, nor in the ruled so that the rulers are merely committee men. But it is invested in the whole church, both the rulers and the ruled. The church thus vested is a spiritual commonwealth. It is neither a monarchy or oligarchy, nor a democracy, but a commonwealth. And then he goes on to talk about the, the various powers. But what powers do you, as citizens of this church, have? Let me list a few of them. 
the power to vote for representatives, the power to recall them from office if they are ruling in breach of the Constitution. And that's something listed in the Book of Church Order. It so rarely happens, and yet it's a very important power that the congregation needs to be aware of. It, you could call it impeachment, but it's really it's slightly different from impeachment. It's the power of recall. Um, another power that you as citizens of the church have is the power of appeal to presbytery and to general assembly. Let's say that the session, which is the Board of Elders, that the session makes some goofy you know, decision that's just unconstitutional. Or maybe there's a court case where there's a tyrannical decision that is made. You have the power to appeal. You have the power to protest uh, to the presbytery. Very important power that the people have as a check and balance. You have another power is a power of ministry and the exercise of your gifts. We believe very strongly the pastor is not the only minister. In fact, I'm the one who is supposed to be rousing up you guys in the work of the ministry. You are the ministers, right? And uh, I'm helping to equip you in that. Family ministry, absolutely essential for the expansion of Christ's kingdom. Another power is the power of secession. Uh, that is an absolutely critical power. When the church becomes corrupt or it becomes tyrannical in the way in which uh, it operates, uh, where there is injustice, uh, it's also important that the congregation not give up its rights to select a pastor. You know, in so many churches, they just let the pulpit committee be the, the session. But the, the congregation needs to have input. And I think it's appropriate for the session to have members. involvement on the, on the pulpit search committee. Uh, one other function of the congregation that relates to its right to select pastors or to ask pastors to step down is the right to determine the pastor's salary uh, in the, the book of church order. The session or the deacons, they can make recommendations, but only the congregation can vote to approve the salary. Now, why did they add that uh, in there? Uh, there have been a couple of court cases where a local congregation was uh, rebuked for for voting on, on the budget. But in the process of doing that, they said the one exception is that they must vote on the pastor's salary. And their reasoning was that a session who didn't like a pastor could get rid of a, of a pastor that the congregation liked by reducing his salary down to $1. And by default, you know, he would probably be forced to leave. And they said that would rob the congregation of its power to select who its officers will be. And so, at least in the PCA, uh, even though you're not allowed to vote on any other aspect of the budget, you do vote on the pastor's uh, salary. So those are a few of the powers of the congregation, and there is a strict separation between the powers that you have and the powers that the session has. And those, that separation needs to be there. Now, amongst the elders, that's the session, there is also a separation of power between the ruling elders, who are the members of the church, and the teaching elders, even if, there's, if, even if we have five assistant pastors or associate pastors, they are not members of the local church. You may have been surprised by that. Kathy and the children are members of Dominion Covenant Church. I'm not allowed to be. I am a member of Presbytery. The ruling elders are the members of the local church. And again, the reason for that is a check and a balance because in churches where the pastors have been members of the local church, there can sometimes be enormous pressure to compromise the message of the word that goes forth. And uh, so, uh, in this case, the pastor is caught between pressures. He gets pressure to be faithful to the word from there. He gets pressure from the congregation. But it, it's one of those helpful checks and balances. Okay, in a 1997 article in the Chalcedon Report, uh, Jack Kettler also articulates a separation of jurisdictions between the local church, presbytery, and general assembly. He said, quote, This doctrine of the separation of powers is clearly seen in reformed church polity or government. For example, there are three layers of courts, the first being the session of the local church, the second being the presbytery or regional church court, and third, the general assembly, the highest court of appeal. You might say, well, why is it important? It's, it's to prevent tyranny and the sin natures from expressing themselves in ungodly ways. 
uh, one Roman Catholic scholar bemoaned the fact that the Roman Catholic Church does not have separation of powers, and he says it leads inevitably to tyranny. And I've got a quote on the back of the worship notes, but let me read that statement by John Langan, Roman Catholic scholar. He says, The absence of any significant separation of powers in the church's legal system creates a situation in which the guardians are, in effect, asked to be their own guardians in which those who are most likely to be responsible for violation of rights are asked to assume the task of protecting the rights. Now, this may seem complicated to you, but believe me, the limits of ecclesiastical power are essential. Concurrent powers are powers that two branches of government have at the same time. Uh, one unfortunate example would be uh, that, uh, what is it, 16th Amendment? Since that time, there's a concurrent power of taxation. Federal government can tax and uh, states can tax. But within the church, there are very legitimate and biblical um, uh, powers that are concurrently held by more than one branch. For example, the right to administer the sacraments is given to the local church, it's given to presbytery, it's given to the General Assembly. And in the Old and New Testaments, you can see all three branches uh, where the sacraments are administered. That's a concurrent power. The rights of discipline are concurrent. And so all three courts uh, can uh, discipline, and all three courts can have original jurisdiction. Um, and when a person is disciplined in one church, all the churches of the PCA have to honor that discipline unless there's been a, an appeal to the presbytery. Okay, so that's concurrent uh, power. Uh, other concurrent powers would be the right to select your own officers. So we send delegates to presbytery, but just because we send delegates and a million dollars to presbytery does not give us the right to demand who is going to be uh, the officers of that presbytery. No. Just as we have the right to choose our own officers in this church, they have the right to choose their officers at the presbytery. Okay, those are concurrent powers. The last kind of power is exclusive powers. In the PCA, there are certain things only a pastor can do. There are certain things only a congregation can do. There are certain things that a pastor may not do by himself. He has to do with the whole group of elders. In fact, no one elder can do it by himself. All of the elders in concert have to do it. And so there are things exclusively for the church session, things that are exclusive to presbytery, things that are exclusive to the general assembly. And they're all laid out in the Constitution. I'm not going to bother going over them. You can read them for yourself. But this has been a little bit more of a technical sermon than some, maybe not as exciting. But let me tell you something. The liberties that flow from those concepts are extremely exciting. At least they are to me. I mean, I, I, they're, they're just wonderful. And so I trust that this little exercise will give you an appreciation for the doctrine of sola scriptura in church government. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word that it is sufficient for life and practice. And we thank you, Father, for the generations of wrestling with the word and the changes and the refinements that have come as they have uh, gained more insight into your word and how church government ought to work. And I pray, Father, that you would keep our denomination from uh, falling away from the pattern uh, that you have set in your word and help us to be reformed and constantly reforming, constantly evaluating the things that we do according to the light of your scripture. We love you, Father, and it's our desire as a local congregation to please you as uh, we have uh, officers that uh, are elected uh, in the future, I pray, Father, that this would just be a, a church where uh, that would run uh, smoothly and in which uh, the, the liberties that you have established in your word would be firmly entrenched and understood and defended. We love you, Father, and we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name.